Welcome to Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Today, I, Sam Gregg, Director of Research at Acton, I'm your host because Eric Cohen is out this week. Thanks for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Dylan Palman. He's a research fellow at the Acton Institute and the executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, as well as uh, Dan Huger, who is a librarian and a research associate at Acton and fount of wisdom on numerous subjects. Today, we're going to be talking about a number of topics. We're going to be talking about China. We're going to be talking about Ukraine. But we're also going to be talking about what's just happened to Nancy Pelosi, uh, the Speaker of the House, vis-a-vis her Archbishop, uh, telling her that priests are forbidden from giving her communion in his archdiocese. But I want to begin not in San Francisco, but on another side of the world. And that, of course, is the world of Ukraine. The Ukraine war has been going on now for a couple of months. We've seen some major changes, both in terms of the way that Russia is waging war, where it's waging war, how different European countries are reacting and continue to react to what's happening uh, with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And there's been a lot of talk about the political dimension of this, the implications for the European Union, what this means for what some people call international liberal order. But one dimension of this conflict, I think, which has clearly come to the forefront, at least in many people's minds, and even in the minds of people who don't necessarily think very much about religion and its implications for geopolitics, is, of course, the religious dimension of this conflict. Now, by that, I don't mean different faiths at war with one another, But what I do mean is that Ukraine is, uh, after Poland, uh, one of the most religious, religiously active countries in the European land space. It's also a country in which uh, it is a majority orthodox country, uh, but it also has a small, albeit uh, quite strong, Greek Catholic minority and even a small Latin rite. Catholic minority, mainly located in the western part of Ukraine. So there's a very big religious dimension to this insofar as Russia, and particularly the Patriarchy of Moscow, is seen as obviously the big player on the block when it comes to the Orthodox world, the Eastern Orthodox world. But this invasion has opened up some interesting political uh, and even ecclesiological splinters in the Orthodox world, uh, not just in terms of Moscow and Kiev, but also Moscow, Kiev, and Constantinople, or its modern title, Istanbul. Uh, So I thought today we might have some reflection on that particular subject, and there's no one better to, I think, discuss this than our own uh, Dylan Parman. So Dylan, I was wondering if you could begin by giving us a very quick outline of, let's call it the religious landscape of this particular conflict, 
And what you see is some of the unreported dimensions of this religious dimension to the Ukraine conflict that you don't think have received enough attention. There's a lot that can be said, and I'm really glad that we're talking about this again um, because this is such a major news event. And, it, you know, it still comes up in the headlines, but it's American media, American press. I think we just get bored after about two weeks and we find something new. So uh, to reiterate uh, somewhat I said a few weeks ago and add to that, um, in the Orthodox uh, Church, there are several different patriarchates. These are basically the equivalent uh, to a pope. So, you know, if you if you like having one pope, just imagine having 9 to 14, depending on how you count, and that's that's kind of the Orthodox Church, um, uh, very simple terms. Um, in uh, Ukraine, uh, there's a history of it being under the Moscow Patriarchate. Um, and in fact, there is still the largest Orthodox Church is the Ukrainian Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. And um, it's it's worth mentioning that their metropolitan of uh, Kiev, um, Onufri, uh, has been very outspoken against the Russian invasion. So I, I don't want to paint this in any simple terms of, uh, you know, one church versus the other within Ukraine. Uh, even there, it's more complicated. Um, however, since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there's been a national Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, that is, uh, I believe, oh, now I'm going to get the terms wrong. Um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Yeah. So there's Orthodox Church in Ukraine, Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Anyway, um, so that's kind of trying to be its own separate from uh, Moscow, it broke off early on as kind of a schismatic group uh, with uh, someone even claiming to be the patriarch of Kiev. Um, and there is a, a, a separate um, kind of there were two similar sort of groups. Uh, since that time, they've been combined into one. They no longer claim to have a patriarch, but they the uh, patriarch of Constantinople, um, who is considered first in honor. Um, and depending on who you ask, if you ask him, he might say, oh, no, no, it's more than just honor. I have authority. Um, one of the things he does is he recognizes the autocephalacy or the independence of various Orthodox churches uh, throughout the world when that becomes necessary. And so um, he, he did that, uh, I believe in 2019. Um, and uh, Moscow did not Take that very well, um, as one might expect. And so he acknowledged this Ukrainian Orthodox Church as legitimate, uh, as independent of Moscow, um, as able to govern itself. Um, and so you have uh, this conflict, not only from the point of view of the Russian state, uh, which may simply be opportunistic, it may be motivated by the expansion of NATO, we can talk about the geopolitical side, uh, but Russia has had a religious revival since the fall of the Soviet Union, really, you know, back going back to the 80s and kind of um, a little bit of the reforms and opening up to the world back then and, and being uh, uh, giving a little more leeway to the church, which was so brutally persecuted and oppressed during the communist era, um, that uh, there's there's this religious dimension to it. And uh, a little bit has been spoken about this, uh, written about it. I think it's maybe worth, uh, maybe we can link to it. Uh, there was a, a statement made, I think it was published at Public Orthodoxy, against this idea of a, a Ruski Mir, or a Russian world ideology. Uh, it's this understanding, or this, this belief that all Russian people, um, understood broadly, all Slavic people perhaps, uh, ought to have, have some... Um, 
internal coherence as one people ought to have one patriarch, and that patriarch should be the patriarch of Moscow. Um, and they should also have one state, and that should be the Russian state, right? Uh, so you have this kind of nationalistic or perhaps even imperial ideology um, backing some of this and some of the rhetoric coming from not only Putin and the Kremlin, but from uh, the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, which has, has, you know, put out some very conflicting uh messages, sometimes saying everything that's going on is totally noble. At other times, he, uh, Patriarch Kirill has made the statement that Russia has never attacked anyone, uh, which I don't, I don't know what that's supposed to be based on. Um, Russia's attacked all kinds of people, even in recent memory, um, up to and including Ukraine. Um, but then he, he mentions, not wrongly, that well, we've been calling for peace this whole time. He has been calling for peace the whole time. He's also been uh, justifying uh, the military actions of uh, the state of Russia. Um, but but there is a line of rhetoric. There is some truth to that. Um, and what I think is hard to disentangle for outsiders is where does this rhetoric come from? Um, and what is what is you know, how, how are we supposed to take it? So the statement of public orthodoxy rejects this idea of a Russian world. And I and to the extent that it's being used in this way, I think they're absolutely right to do so. And this is like a bunch of orthodox theologians, scholars, priests, bishops, have signed, I, I believe bishops, I can't, I shouldn't say affirmatively, but plenty of people have signed on to this. Um, even some non-orthodox scholars who are simply interested in orthodoxy and want to speak against it. Um, but it, it really is rooted in Russian history. And uh, this is where things get so hard to disentangle, that um, in the Russian mind, everything goes back to Kiev. Um, and the Prince Vladimir, in 988, accepted Christianity, and specifically Byzantine Christianity, Orthodox, what became Orthodox Christianity after the, the Great Schism, um, uh, in, in the sense closer to what we know it today. Um, and... In 988, the people were baptized. It spread throughout Russian lands. Vladimir had united the people, and they were baptized in the Dnieper River. Um, and so then you have this, at this, the same time you have this birthplace of culture and national mindset, you have Christianity. So you have these two things really un inseparable um, in that part of the world. Well, on um, that point, Dylan, if yeah. I was wondering if I could uh, ask you a couple of questions that follow yeah. up from everything you said, which I thought was a very good summary of some of the, the background to this. Yeah. The first is, what do you think Vladimir Putin sees when he looks at the Russian Orthodox Church? That's the first question. My second question is, what has been the reaction of Orthodox believers who are outside, let's call it the Orthodox world. So I'm talking about people like sure. you, for example. Yeah. You're Greek Orthodox. Yep. You're living in the United States. Mm -hmm. You're a member of the Greek Orthodox Church of the United States. But there are Orthodox believers scattered throughout uh, Western Europe, North America, Central America, yes. Latin America, yes. mm -hmm. even some parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is, is truly a global phenomenon, right? Yes. So I'm wondering, well, let's call it the... I'm sure this is not the, the right expression, but what does the orthodox di diaspora, so to speak, yeah, how no, are they reacting to this? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I, I mean, I would say, you know, largely supportive of Ukraine. Um, and, that, and that includes even people who in the past um, have been, uh, you know, people might have called them Russian apologists, people I know. Um, I don't want to name names or whatever, but a, a lot of them I've even seen 
uh, with very sane <laughs> perspectives on this. They're, they're not willing to go that far, even when uh, they say, you know, uh, Russia doesn't always get a fair shake in our media. And, you know, in the past, they've been trying to say, hey, we could be friends. We have these this Christian heritage that we share. Why can't we have a more positive stance towards Russia? A lot of these same people uh, have, have condemned uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think that's very positive. Now, that's not to say uh, that there aren't exceptions to that. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia uh, didn't exactly uh, justify everything that happened, but it basically told people not to even watch TV or read media. Um, basically, don't believe anything you hear uh, because they didn't. They don't want people. Um, they don't want. They don't want the, their image tarnished, basically. So this um, is ro- what's called Rokor, yes, right? Yes, Russian Rokor. Orthodox Church outside of Russia. So that that was uh, coming from their metropolitan, I believe, um, or one of their metropolitans. Um, so so it's not to say that I'm sure if you bump into the average, uh, you know, Orthodox Christian, you might find a variety of views. Um, part of that gets back to what I was saying, though, and I'll get back to your question about Putin um, uh, in a minute. Um Gets back to what I'm, what I was saying in that uh, I think Russian propaganda. So all governments use some sort of propaganda. Propaganda is political advertising, um, and uh, Ukraine uses it too. To some degree, the United States does too. So Ukraine, we mentioned a few weeks ago, there was like a flight simulator uh, clip that was getting uh, shuffled around on social media. Everybody was saying, oh, this fighter pilot is the ghost of Kiev and he's shooting down Russian planes. It was a video game. It was not real, but like an official Ukrainian Twitter account tweeted it out or retweeted it or whatever. So that's like kind of the Ukrainian type. Is anything positive, we're just going to throw it out there, see if it sticks. Uh, My intuition, my observation about Russian propaganda is that it's a bit more subtle. Um, Now, from the West, we see the ridiculousness of certain things, like maybe this Russian world ideology. Um, but I think I think Russians know that the most effective propaganda contains as much truth as you can, right? So uh, that's where you get this this they're they're appealing to this shared history. That there is a shared history between Russia and Ukraine, um, and uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, that people are fighting. And I, the, the counterexample I would give is, once again, Metropolitan Onufri, who's condemned uh, the attack, as along with uh, other uh, clerics in, in Ukraine, um, appeals to the same sort of thing. Hey, we were both baptized. Uh, you know, our, we come from this Dnieper River. Uh, we shouldn't be fighting one another, right? That's his, uh, his uh, interpretation of kind of that same understanding of we're one people. Uh, instead of saying we're one people, therefore we should have one state uh, and one patriarchate and, you know, that sort of thing. He says we're one people, therefore we, shouldn't, we, should, we should be at peace. We shouldn't be fighting. Um, and that's an entirely different trajectory. Uh, you, can, you can take that. Um, so to, I, I feel like I meandered a bit, but I'll, I'll But circle, let's talk, let's yeah. talk about Vladimir Putin yeah, in that so, regard, yeah, right? Because he's, he's very Putin. much, he's, he's, a, he's Russian Orthodox, he right? He is, so. he is. So, uh, so Putin is, is not someone I will claim to, you know, have any insight into his inner psyche or anything like that. Um, I do regard him as a dictator, or at least an aspiring one. Um, I, I think he fits the definition as far as we know it. Um, and, uh, you know, he is kind of the the, the sort of strongman leader. Um, it is worth putting in context uh, in Russian politics. Uh, so uh, Putin is known for disappearing 
anyone who criticizes him. Um, so basically any lib- liberal, you know, genuinely classically liberal movement in Russia has has not been allowed to survive uh, within Russia and, and to some degree even from without. Um, but uh, uh, so people criticize him. They disappear. They get poisoned. They turn up dead um, or they get exiled. Um, and that includes political opponents, journalists, um, journalists in protests have famously uh cut to um, Swan Lake, uh, which was uh, would often happen during the communist era. And it was kind of this this very visual protest against uh, a lot of the propaganda coming out of the Kremlin. Uh, this just recently, just a few months ago, they did this. Um, there were pre- people with signs live on air. Um, so what's going on with Putin? Um, the other side of the political context is that the other options within Russia that are allowed to exist at all are even worse than Putin, from what I can tell. You know, there's the communists. We all know how bad that was. Uh, And then there's like real neo-Nazis, not to say that Putin might not be sympathetic to some degree, but there's there's just every extreme and not a lot of genuine liberal options uh, there. Well, let's focus Um, a little bit then on his specific relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church, because... I mean, there's always been a type of symbiosis between church and state right. for a long time in Russian history. Even Stalin, <laughs> yeah. during the what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War, didn't hesitate to uh, sort of conjure right. this type of past up. So what do you think is going on vis-a-vis Putin and the Russian Orthodox right. Church? So, so cynically, Putin knows that the church is powerful. It's the most trusted cultural institution in Russia from you know the last data that, that I am aware of. Um, and he needs legitimacy from the church. Um, so you can look at it purely in that sense, that he wants the church to uh, back his agenda um, in order to legitimize it. Um, and he's done that in a number of ways. So uh, military interventions in the Middle East, uh, in Syria, for example, he's positioned himself and Russia as defender of Middle Eastern Christians uh, in the midst of the the Syrian conflict there. Um, and and you know, again, like he has some reality he can point to. He can say, look, you know, the West, they're funding all these militia groups. Well, some of them are like ISIS and the Taliban, right? Like we haven't been always that discriminating in who we're funding over there. And so he says, look, we're the good guys, right? We're defending the Christians. Uh, Within Russia, um, he has backed uh, legislation that basically bans things like gay pride parades. He calls it uh, propaganda. Um, uh, So, you know, this kind of anti- LGBT propaganda legislation where it's like, do what you want in your home, but don't do it publicly. That's illegal. Um, the church has very much supported this sort of thing. Um, and so he he's putting himself forward. And again, if you consider the alternatives are atheistic communism and maybe something worse, um, he's at least portraying himself as the Christian alternative, as is the Christian national or imperial option. Um, and as, as for his own practice, I don't know what to think. Um, there is uh, a beautiful book uh, called Everyday Saints that came out about 10 years ago, and it's about uh, this one monastery that was not shut down during the Soviet era. And it talks about all of the the persecution that these monks endured and how they held on to holiness, how some of them, you know, there's stories from prison camps and things like that. Well, the author is a priest who I'm told, at least at the time, was Vladimir Putin's confessor. As in Vladimir Putin 
goes to confession, and this man is the one hearing it. I don't know what to think about that. It's a beautiful book. I think the the writer is genuine, has real faith. What do I think about Vladimir Putin going to confession? Um, you know, he attends church, and I don't think it's just on Christmas and Easter, right? Um, that's something that I think ought to make people uncomfortable, not just Orthodox Christians, although certainly should make people like me uncomfortable, uh, but any Christian. Um, that there are, It may very well be that Vladimir Putin thinks what he's doing is fully justified from a Christian point of view. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it plays into <clears throat> the notion that I think in this idea of certain states, India, China, Russia, being what some people call civilizational states. And by that, I don't mean they're sort of better. What I mean is that they have a sense of identity that goes beyond what we would understand to be how a typical sovereign state understands itself. It sees itself as embodying certain things and a whole a view of the world that goes back, a view itself and a view of the world that goes back a long time and explains a lot of continuity between uh, different rulers of Russia or China or India for that matter. But let's switch a little bit now. We've talked quite a bit about the religious side. Let's talk about the economic side. So, Dan, here I'd like to turn to you. Uh, Ukraine, we often don't think about in economic terms very much, but it's very much become apparent (laughs) over the past two months that Ukraine has a pretty big role to play in a particular part of uh, the global economy, and that concerns food supplies. So we're hearing talk now that there's going to be food shortages that are going to be a consequence of Russia's um, war against Ukraine, uh, blockages. Uh, the Black Sea fleet of Russia is enforcing a blockade of Russia of Ukraine's what's left of Ukraine's coastline, so to speak. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how some of the economic effects of the Ukraine war are now starting to affect the rest of the world. The devastation in Ukraine is well known. Um, it just the the sheer amount of physical damage, brutality, disruption to people's lives. 15% of Ukrainians are now living outside of the Ukraine. Uh, They're in Poland. They are in um, Hungary. Some of them are even in Russia that have been, you know, just by where they have been displaced from. um, And a lot of folks have been very generous, particularly the, 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 the Polish state has been very generous with Ukrainian refugees. Um, what is happening in Russia is less certain. Um, press controls have dampened down. The ruble has rebounded, however, um, and part of this has to do with uh, sort of currency controls, issues of trying to get payments in rubles for uh, petroleum and natural gas and other And a fair amount of intervention from the Russian central bank, as I understand. Yes. Yep. So all of that, all of that is something that I think we're not going to be able to assess until after the war. However, both Russia and the Ukraine are leading exporters of both wheat and fertilizer, particularly to places like East Africa. Um, Those effects we have seen rising food prices around the world. Some of that is impacted by this. Some regions uh, that are more dependent on 
Russian and Ukrainian fertilizer in wheat are, are hit more severely. One of the places we've seen a sort of preview of this, of what may happen, is in Sri Lanka. Now, Sri Lanka is now in a very unstable situation. There have been food riots. There are petroleum shortages. There are all sorts of political problems. They're talking about defaulting on their debt, for example. Yeah. Foreign currency reserves are low. The situation in Sri Lanka is a little bit remarkable in two respects. One is it was an economy extremely dominated by tourism. And there were some terrorism issues in 2019 that caused a curtailing of that. And then the global pandemic, which, which hurt that even more. Simultaneously, the government instituted a chemical fertilizer ban. Um, they wanted to go organic as a country. And we have seen a reduction in yields domestically in Sri Lanka of something on the order of 30% as a direct result of that. Now, the government has reversed that ban, but fertilizer is more expensive than ever. All those distribution channels were disrupted, and now we have widespread food shortages, petroleum shortages, this sort of cascading effect. Now, this is something we haven't seen anywhere else because of those particular issues um, in Sri Lanka. But we have seen, for instance, India imposed wheat controls on their own domestic wheat production and exports in anticipation of the supply disruptions. Those have been loosened somewhat. Um, since they were initially imposed, but nations uh, particularly uh, closer to Russia, more dependent and more integrated into uh, those economies of both Russia and the Ukraine are starting to feel the pinch. And this can be, as we've seen in Sri Lanka, a very destabilizing thing, um, particularly with nations like Ethiopia that have had longstanding political turmoil before this and our and our heavy importers of wheat from uh, both Russia and the Ukraine. So this is this is something that people really need to pay attention to. Um, and this is something that, you know, as the Ukrainian conflict in general has sort of receded from public consciousness, these second order effects have also done so. And uh, we could face a real humanitarian crisis. Well, let's talk about another part of the world which has introduced some disrupting effects upon uh, the rest of the globe, and that is China. So China, of course, uh, is a country in which uh, widespread lockdowns are still being implemented and, in, and kept in place in different parts of the country in response to COVID. This seems to be Beijing's uh, preferred approach to dealing with COVID, which is interesting given that the rest of the world has moved in a, let's call it a, we need to learn to how to live with this direction. But it's also having some significant effects uh, upon the Chinese economy. So um, Dylan, I'm wondering in terms of what's happening in China, in terms of the lockdowns, in terms of the different things that have been happening in an economy which up until, well, relatively recently was seen as an economy that was growing very quickly, that was producing lots of prosperity for itself and the rest of the world. What do you see as some of the implications of China's lockdown approach to COVID and the way that it affects its economy, but also the broad return to the state 
that we're seeing in China right now vis-a-vis economic matters. What do you see as some of the implications for the rest of the world and maybe particularly the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, when China was let into the World Trade Organization, um, the trend was towards liberalization. Um, now, I think less so than people realize, but enough to make a significant impact in China. Um, now, no one is actually. So, one of the things I've, I've learned um, only in the last few years is that it's not people weren't even given the right to own a business. They were given. Um, I believe 75 year leases or something like that limited leases but long enough that it could be their lifetime to to run a business that still is technically owned by the state right um, so that's that kind of conditional liberty always hanging over the head uh, that the state can take it back if it wants to um, has been the conditions under which we've seen um, the gains uh, we have seen in, say, the last 20 years in China. And what we're seeing, uh, certainly politically um, in recent years, uh, there is this turn to the state. And now we're really seeing um, the effects of it, I think, uh, that all of this was so, so fragile. Um, and I think liberty is fragile everywhere. Uh, you know, Lord Acton famously said that liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. Um, And so we shouldn't take it for granted anywhere. But certainly in China, they really never had it. Um, They had a taste of it. Um, And that is being revoked um, in just widespread ways, uh, the little bit that they had, um, to the point where you have these these lockdowns. Um, You have, you know, as we know, you know, widespread invasion of privacy and totalitarian rules on family production, you know, uh, household size and all these sorts of things. And um, that's really the China that we should expect um, rather than the little glimmer of hope for liberty that some people experienced and that that led to such booming growth uh, for the last few decades. So, Dan, let me turn to you and ask, what do you see? First of all, my first point is, uh, question would be, what do you see as some of the implications for American economic life as a consequence of what's happening in China now, both in terms of the lockdowns, but also some of these broad trends away from what was always, as Dylan, I think, rightly points out, a very limited commitment to liberty, a very almost, well, we'll accept it up to a certain point, but no further, and now we're even going to wind back on what we've already granted to people. But I'm wondering what you see as some of the, the the challenges that this is going to produce for the American economy, not just in terms of today, whether it's shortages of particular goods or the way it might infa- affect things like inflation, but how it's going to affect America's relationship with China going forward. One of the things that China was always seen as, despite all of the sort of moral issues, the issues of freedom, of movement, is they reliably delivered the goods in a literal sense. And with these zero COVID policies, if you look at the shipping maps outside of Shanghai, China is no longer a reliable supplier of goods. At this point, I think you're going to see, um, you've seen already some companies reshoring, uh, bringing production to the United States. For instance, uh, Apple has made very 
uh, extensive investments in this sort of thing. And I think you're also going to see uh, corporations increasingly look outside of China. Um, at the same time, you have a rising awareness among Americans and a rising level of comfort among American politicians explicitly addressing the problems of human rights in China. Um, you know, this goes from, you know, major politicians on both sides of the aisle to uh, folks like the general manager, well, the former general manager of the Houston Rockets before he uh, launched a firestorm of controversy about the NBA's relationship with China. Um, this is something that is now regularly talked about in the NBA. The NBA's uh, relationship with China is still quite amicable, but that discussion is now being had and has been entered to by other uh, persons in the league, including players, uh, Enos, the former former uh, Enos Cantor, now uh, who has officially changed his name to Enos Freedom, is uh, someone who, uh, <laughs> upon receiving his American citizenship, uh, originally from Turkey, uh, is someone who is very outspoken about this, um, and you will see the public backlash to. Disney's live-action remake of Mulan, in which the lead actress defended the Hong Kong police who were at the time brutalizing uh, uh, protesters in Hong Kong who were agitating for democracy and the historic rights of the people of Hong Kong. So everything is sort of on the table. And when you have emerging economies like India that um, are very eager to uh, cultivate foreign investment um, and who have their own problems with rule of law and these sorts of things. Or the way that they treat Indian Muslims, for example. Absolutely. Um, and Christians as well um, and religious minorities in general, um, folks, uh, yeah. So you have you have at this time, I think I think a reevaluation of this um, simply because the one thing that China was reliable in doing, which was maintaining economic growth and delivering on the production question, are now both in question. And China is now heavily leveraged in public debt, and is not you know, and you can't really trust the economic growth figures to begin with, but. Uh, but economists who know are, are believe the Chinese economy is very shaky right now. Well, let's, that leads me to the, a question I'd like to pose to both of you. So China is a nation of 1.3, 1 1.4 billion people, depending on how you count that. It has an economy which uh, by different measures is uh, the second biggest in the world uh, when it just comes to things like raw GDP numbers, et cetera. So uh, for all the problems that it's presenting right now, whether it's in terms of the whole COVID catastrophe, whether it's in terms of its uh, crackdown on religious liberty, uh, uh, particularly when we see people like Cardinal Zen is going into court tomorrow with, along with some other activists who have been charged with colluding with foreign powers by the, by the Chinese regime. So it has all these problems. 
but it's also still there. It's still uh, a major power in the world. It's still a major economic force in the world. Uh, what does America do? Do we uh, ignore it? Do we pretend as if nothing has changed? Do we move towards a position of, let's call it, isolating them from the global economy? Or do we, is there some sort of fundamental strategic rethinking that's going to be needed so that you can take into account these all these concerns that both of you have just mentioned, but also these very, very salient realities about China's place in the world today. What do you, let me start with you, Dylan. What do you think should be the United States stance going forward? And then I'll turn to Dan and ask him the same question. So I would hope uh, it would be multidimensional in that um, on the one hand, hopefully we should be looking uh, for alternative trade partners. Um, A, we may of necessity have to. Um, but B, we should we should actually care about the way in which our trade partners treat their own people, um, and I think that's that's a fine point people have been making for decades about about China, um, and the hope uh, in the past was that well trade is going to make them better, and there was some reason to believe maybe that would be true, but we're seeing plenty of counterexamples in the last decade at least um, to the point where. Um, yeah, we should we should be very open uh, to alternatives. On the other hand, um, I think it would be uh, very dangerous for the the point you mentioned that they, this still is one of the largest economies in the world uh, and one in the most populous nation in the world, um, or one of them. I don't know if India has more, um, but uh, uh, to 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 not um, push them into further isolationism and desperation and extremism as much as possible. And um, there's a lot of ways we can do that. So we've been talking about, you know, the character of the Chinese communist state. Um, we should be careful not to conflate that with the character of Chinese civilization and the Chinese people. Uh, there was a great article a few weeks ago, uh, a week or two ago, at uh, Law and Liberty on a Confucian case for liberty, um, talking about how the the Chinese Communist Party has misappropriated the Confucian uh, philosophical tradition, which has a, a very clear an analog to natural law and a lot of the expectations that come out of that in the West. And it may not have been able to fully you know, flower and bloom and bear fruit uh, in China in the same way, but there's, there's raw material there, raw cultural, civilizational material there that's very positive, uh, that people of goodwill can look at and recognize and, uh, you know, see the imprint of God's good intentions uh, for human flourishing uh, within the civilization. So I, I hope that that story can be told more and more. I hope that we will support Hong Kong. I hope that we will support Taiwan. We will show cases of Chinese democracy as real as these longstanding uh, uh, successes um, and that we won't back down um, our our support um, and our duty um, towards those people as well. Well, I, I should mention that the Lauren Liberty article that you just mentioned was written by a Dominican priest who uh, lives and teaches in Hong Kong. And he was responding to a previous article by someone else who was arguing the contrary case, that he, the, the contrary case was that Confucianism uh, is of such a character that to expect that China would ever move in the direction of uh, greater political liberalization was always uh, a mistake 
because of these, what the author argued were certain Confucian assumptions about the world. But I thought it was really interesting to see these two people arguing about what this very long tradition of philosophical thought, its implications for both China itself and its and its capacity to embrace the institutions of liberty, but also the way that uh, we, we looking from the outside, often discount the influence of let's call them indigenous philosophical systems and the way that they shape uh, political actors in the present. So, but Dan, let me turn to you. What do you think the United States should do going forward with China? I think, I think Dylan's, I think, I think the first point is you constructively engage democratic or at least more democratic Chinese uh, instances of Chinese states in the world. And we have two of those, both Taiwan and Singapore. And I think it's very important to maintain that distinction between, you know, uh, the Chinese communist regime as one that is essentially sort of anti-human um, and uh, monstrous in all sorts of ways, but not to confuse that with Chinese people. Um, and I think the easiest way you can do that is to have very strong relationships with other Chinese states that are much more open, much more democratic, much more liberal, um, and which are really among the success stories of East Asia economically. Um, They're both, you know, punch well above their weight um, in in those respects. Even a country like Indonesia, which is, a, as you know, a majority Muslim country, the commercial class in Indonesia has for a long time been dominated by people from ethnic Chinese backgrounds. Absolutely. I think the other thing we need to realize is that all positive changes in China have been internal. The history of American Chinese engagement, beginning with Nixon, with the with the with the with the Chinese Communist Party state apparatus, beginning with Nixon, you know Nixon opens up to China. Why? Because he sees there a potential wedge in the Soviet Union and in international communism, and wants a relationship with China to counterbalance the Soviet Union. Um, that may or may not have been a great idea. Um, but it was not conditioned on any sort of political liberalization, and Nixon was under no illusions that it would lead to such. Um, the second is the reforms that Deng Xiaoping initiates are of his own initiative and the initiative of like-minded people in the party at the time, of an internal party faction. Um, this is before China's admittance to the WTO. It's not all of these reforms happen internally. Now the the international community can support those changes, but I think uh, I think we gravely misunderstand the situation if we believe that we can in any way force this either through carrots or sticks. And you look at what Deng Xiaoping appealed to in his case for his reforms is many of those appeals were made directly not to we want to be more like America, but we want to be more like Singapore. 
because there is an example of a dynamic economy, market economy, that, you know, Singapore is plurality Chinese. These are the models that they look for. So I think the best thing you can do is aggressively support those models where they exist in the world, in Taiwan, in Singapore, um, and also be very clear in denunciations of human rights abuses in China and realize that sort of, you know, the idea that we're going to curry favor, that we can sort of reward this regime into, you know, we can we can set out the Reese's pieces and expect it like E.T. to follow. Or at the same time, that if we take a very aggressive stance that they're going to change. These are largely, these questions are, are unfortunately largely beyond our control. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean we can do what we can, we can't do what we can to support Chinese democracies elsewhere in the world and to be very clear about the shortcomings of the Chinese regime itself and to not reward this behavior. Well, I think one uh, <clears throat> one point I think that's worth injecting into this discussion is that you mentioned Singapore a number of times. Um, I think it's fair to say that Singapore is pretty economically free. Uh, political freedom is a little different, I think, <laughs> in Singapore. it's it's uh, Many people have described as a city-state run by about 200 families uh, since, for, since the 1950s and 60s. That said, it's clearly not like mainland China. It's clearly much more politically uh, freer, so to speak, than mainland uh, China. I think your point also about um, reforms emerging from within no one expected China to turn towards the, the, the limited, let's call it the limited economic liberalization, which uh, Dylan stressed. No one expected that to happen in the late 1970s. And I think there's good reason to believe that there are people inside the Chinese Communist Party who don't necessarily share all of Xi's particular vision. And it may be the case that their strength gets, uh, their hand gets strengthened a little bit by some of the clear economic problems that are now starting to merge in China as a consequence of China's return to a, uh, an even bigger role for the state in the economy. So to wrap up, I'd like to move to our third topic, which we foreshadowed right at the beginning, which is a very different subject to Ukraine, to China, and that is uh, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, late last week, Archbishop uh, Cordelion, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Archbishop of San Francisco, announced to uh, his priests in a very public declaration that Speaker Pelosi, because of her position, long-standing position on questions of abortion and the legality of abortion and the treatment of abortion under United States law and her support for maintaining those positions in place, those laws in place and all the policies that go along with that, that she, he was asked her to refrain from receiving communion. 
Now, this is not excommunication. I think that's important for people who may not be familiar with these things outside the Roman Catholic and wider Christian world. This is not excommunication. It is, however, a way of stating that someone is seriously out of step with a point of what Catholics call faith and morals that is is simply not not up for discussion. But Dan, um, I'll start with you first. Uh, what are your thoughts on this on this move by Archbishop Cordelione, and what do you think some of its implications might be? So Nancy Pelosi is a very curious case. We have had in the United States for a long time folks who were both, uh, you know, Roman Catholics and who argued, uh, advocated for abortion rights. Nancy Pelosi is, is, is different than most of those for sort of two reasons. One is the recent initiative in the House, of which she is a speaker, which brought forth a positive piece of legislation to enshrine abortion rights at the national level as a matter of law. She both brought this before the House, argued in favor of it, and voted for it. Um, That bill eventually died in the Senate, um, but that is, you know, you could always make the case that, you know, um, it's very hard when you have that particular legislative action on your record um, and the encouragement of abortion rights for, you know, this to be just a happenstance of party. This is an official taking concrete actions to move public policy um, on many levels, uh, at a, a level of both party leadership and bringing the bill to bear and then on positively voting for it. The other is that Nancy Pelosi has in the past articulated a very sort of heterodox understanding of or misunderstanding of what the church teaches on abortion. Back in 2008 on Meet the Press, she sort of made the case that this was an open question in the Catholic Church as to when life began. And she invoked various early, you know, uh, uh, medieval disputes about um, when the quickening happens and what exactly that means and when the soul enters the body and these sorts of things. And she said, oh, there were very, there were always been various opinions about this. Well, there were controversies trying to reconcile um, Christian views of, of God's creation of the soul with the biological science of the time, um, which went in all sorts of different directions. What was, however, never in dispute was that uh, abortion was morally permissible in any sense. There were adjudications as to how this sort of medieval science should affect maybe canonical penalties for abortion in the church. But it, it really, I mean, her whole argument is one that just sought to cloud a debate that 
um, was never really a debate in the church. And the bishops responded at the time accordingly. So you have this, this, this very unique, you know, you will get, um, this is not even, you know, Joe Biden has, President Joe Biden has said in the past that, you know, he is personally pro-life, but believes in the sort of status quo of abortion rights in the United States. Her position is not that. Her position is that the church may be mistaken about life itself, and not even that the church is mistaken, but that the church's position is somehow not ambiguous and not unanimous throughout the tradition. So I think that's the important context that you have to look at at this particular statement as to, you know, we have had bishops in the past who have said that politicians who support or abortion rights should not receive communion in their diocese. This is like a very direct action. This is also one where the Archbishop of San Francisco had tried on numerous occasions to reach out to Speaker Pelosi to discuss these issues with her. And this public announcement was not the first step. This is the culmination of months of trying to contact, set up a meeting, deal with this pastorally on a person-to-person level. Um, and those have frankly been ignored um, from what we know. Uh, I don't believe Speaker Pelosi has, has, has responded, but the, uh, the archbishop has made clear that you know, there were attempts to contact over a course of months Speaker Pelosi about this, and she refused to take the call. Yes, I think it's also worth mentioning here that um, she's not the only Roman Catholic politician who has been given basically, let's call them instructions by a bishop that they are not to do this. Uh, there's a bishop, there's a diocese, for example, in Illinois, Diocese of Springfield, where the bishop has informed at least two uh, politicians that they are not to receive communion. Uh, on a, as a consequence of their position on the abortion controversy. And my guess is, and I'm only guessing here, that there's a fair number of um, practicing Catholic politicians who have pro-choice positions who don't, uh, who don't go to communion because it's been privately communicated to them that they should not be doing this. I don't know that for a fact. I can't point to an example, but I, I'm pretty sure that that, that is the case. But let's uh, let's let's pivot to you Dylan. What are your thoughts about this particular subject in terms of what it says about the relationship between let's call it church and state or how some people understand this or how some people might misunderstand this relationship. Yeah, no that's a great question. Uh, over the weekend uh, in direct response to this uh, on on Twitter, uh, which we know is the, the best place to go uh, for real life, uh, <laughs> uh, the the trend, the hashtag tax the church was trending. Um, and the claim being, well, if the archbishop can do this to Nancy Pelosi, uh, the government should be able to tax him. I don't, it, it seems like a non sequitur to me because it is. Um, but what I don't think people who kind of jump to that politicized hot take realize uh, is what they're asserting. Um, They're trying to say that the church should not be a separate sphere of society at all. Um, And it's the same sort of mentality you have in, say, you know, not not to say that these places are at all totalitarian. I don't want to draw that 
sort of a comparison. But, you know, there are countries where there's a church tax, not in the sense of the church being taxed, but the people are taxed in order to pay the salaries of priests and clergy. Germany, for example. Uh, yes, Germany, for example, right? Um, and, uh, and that d- generally doesn't go well uh, for the church. Um, and I think uh, what people don't realize is that doesn't go well for the nation either. Uh, the n- sphere of religion is distinct from the state. Um, to use uh, Abraham Kuyper's terminology, um, Nancy Pelosi is a member of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, as its own sphere of society, has a right to govern itself as it wishes. Um, and uh, in the United States, we've always had uh, a healthy separation of church and state where we have not established any particular religion and then supported it with taxes um, in that in that sense. Um, for the most part, we have not tried to actively suppress religions. Um, but we've also understood that you need uh, people need religion, or at least religious like uh, sort of uh, communities and authorities in their life. Um, that this is essential to having a virtuous populace. Um, and that's not you're not always going to like what somebody else's church is doing. That doesn't mean that, therefore, the government should step in and should take away their resources that people have, by the way, donated voluntarily out of their earnings, which were already taxed. Uh, This is a nonprofit institution. It's not receiving. It's not it's for the most part. It's not like producing some good that's then going to market and it's making a profit. It is relying on donations. Um, in many cases. And these donations are already tax incomes of the participants. Now, Nancy Pelosi can respond by not donating if she really wants to. Um, that would be one way to hurt the church financially, perhaps. But that would be her own private initiative. And that would be her own choice. Um, she could respond by joining a different church that doesn't care about her position on abortion. Um there are all sorts of things she could do. Uh, the idea that we then just jump to, hey, a church is doing something we don't like. We need the state to get involved. It's the same sort of mentality, uh, of the, this kind of integralist mentality that the line between church and state should be blurred um, and that the state should have a heavy hand where needed. Um, and that's that opens things both ways. And that leads to all sorts of societal and really civilizational confusion um, and often really to uh, a waning of uh, religiosity, at least within those established churches. And a breakdown of uh, that that distinction that certainly the um, the Bill of Rights has tried to tried right at the very beginning to put in place in the United States, which is non-establishment. And that's people's understanding of that, I think, is not always particularly good or accurate. But I like the point you made there that this is the, this is the flip side of the integralist position, right? So the integralist would say, well, the, the state needs to be enforcing uh, all sorts of edicts of a given church. Uh, but we have this reverse situation now where people are saying, well, because a given church says this on this particular subject, we need to use the state yeah. to punish These people should really ask themselves, do they want the state in the business of enforcing religious values? My guess is basically all of them would say no, but that's exactly what they're advocating for. Just not the same values as the church. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that seems like a good point to uh, end this podcast today. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, 
Please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast, five stars review only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dylan, thanks to Dan, the Acton Institute, and the absent Eric Cohen. I'm Sam Gregg. We'll see you next week. Thank you.